Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast. And I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. Last week on the podcast, we took a trip to Brooklyn to visit with Peggy's family and spoke about the black elite of the Gilded Age. This week, we're heading back up to the Upper East Side of Manhattan to explore the roles men, women, and servants held during this time and how these huge houses were run. We'll also be talking to Miss Marion Brooke herself, Louisa Jacobson, and to Thomas Cockerell, who plays Mr. Tom Rakes. But first, let's dive into episode five of The Gilded Age, titled Charity Has Two Functions, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. So, Tom, as always, this episode was packed with action and drama, but I'd like to begin with a quick overview of the key staff who were hired to run these houses. Yes, we've spoken about the wide variety of domestic helpers who made life comfortable, um, even extravagant, at both the Van Rynes and the Russells. So let's get specific, because after you mentioned Greg King's book, A Season of Splendor, The Court of Mrs. Astor in Gilded Age, New York, I, of course, had to run out and get a copy and read the chapter on the unseen armies inside these houses. Mm -hmm. And one fact I read was that the numbers of servants was another way that the wealthy could show status, like the Russells. Absolutely, yeah. If you had a larger team of domestic helpers, it probably meant that you had a larger house, right? And you had more money. And we certainly see that just by comparing the Van Rynes' smallish household staff to the Russells' army of workers. Oh, yes. And they could be dressed differently too because we see that the Russells' footmen wear uniforms that are much more ornate than the Van Rijn staff. Yeah, and by the 1880s, you actually got bonus points for full livery dress. Butlers were always in black, but the more it looked like your footman had just been, you know, transported from Versailles, the better. Um, Or at least that was the intention. I I think that Aunt Agnes would have found it a bit ridiculous and distasteful. Uh, And so she kept Jack wearing always, you know, a rather conservative black suit. No frills on Jack. No, no, no silk tights. No velvet knickers on Jack. (laughs) And no matter the number, there was always a hierarchy within the servants because there was the upper servants who were the domestic staff, the ones that had the most personal contact with the family members, and then the lower servants who were more anonymous. They were lower paid and they often did the bulk of the physical work. Mm -hmm. And at the very top of all of this was the butler who ran the whole show. Here we have Mr. Bannister at the Van Rynes and Mr. Church at the Russells. And we we see how they're always at the front door to greet and to direct things. They're in constant contact, you know, with the master or the lady of the house. Uh, But they're also in the kitchen giving orders and even keeping the conversation above board. Oh, yes, we definitely see that. And having an English butler was ideal. Absolutely, because remember that New York society, in many ways, was largely imitating European nobility. 
the new mansions, you know, they were modeled on French chateaus or English manors or Italian villas. So yes, to have an English butler was yet another sign of status. And the butler also oversaw the meals just to make sure that everything was perfect. And served the meals along with a footman. And he served the wine too. Mm. By the way, Alicia, did you, have you noticed how they're always drinking wine at lunch? Yes. I mean, even Aunt Agnes gets into it. <laughs> well, I suppose, I mean, wouldn't you have wine with lunch in that dining room? <laughs> I wonder I wonder if Aunt Agnes ever just had, you know, like iced tea. I cannot imagine that. Uh, but of course, there were also all kinds of rules around how to serve and how to dine. And the butler had to know all of that. Yeah. You mentioned Greg King's book, Season of Splendor, um, in which he points out that the right butler could also ensure that the master, the lady of the house, wasn't committing some horrible faux pas, you know, that could embarrass them in front of company. And we've Mm. already seen how important that is to Bertha. Absolutely. And then there was the housekeeper. And I find it really interesting that this role was always a woman and always referred Mm -hmm. to as a Mrs., even if she wasn't married. Yeah, true. And, And in the larger houses, like the Russells, she really wouldn't be doing any of the actual cleaning herself, right? She'd be running the maids. She'd be meeting with the lady of the house, you know, every day, really, to discuss any household matters and plans for the day. Yeah, she's like the go-to person for the lady of the house. And in the Russell Mm -hmm. household, the housekeeper is Mrs. Bruce. Exactly. And in the Van Ryn house, the housekeeper is Mrs. Bauer, who is also the cook. Okay, so you mentioned the cook. So this is a real difference between the houses because the Russells have a French chef, Monsieur Bourdin, which Mm -hmm. I imagine must have been particularly chic for the time. Yeah, they were paying a premium price, right, for a French chef, and that would get people's attention. It looks to me like the Van Rynes have a five-person staff inside. You know, there's there's Bannister, the butler, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Bauer, the cook slash housekeeper. And then there's also Armstrong, Bridget, and Jack. So let's talk about Armstrong. She's a lady's maid, which means that she looks after Agnes and Ada. Yeah, we see her with Agnes. I'm assuming that she helps Ada and maybe even Marion sometimes too. I don't know. But the lady's maid would be in charge of helping her lady get dressed and get ready. Yeah, I imagine you would need a lot of help to get into those corsets and those dresses Mm -hmm. and probably help Mm -hmm. with those hairstyles too. Yeah, and with the jewelry and with the shoes Mm -hmm. and even with keeping all the clothes organized, you know, Ladies' maids would even keep track of when outfits had been worn so that you wouldn't be caught wearing the same dress to the same house during the same season. Oh, can you imagine the horror? (laughs) (laughs) And even though Mr. Russell had no corset to be laced into, he also has help. (laughs) He'd look good in a corset. No. He would. Uh, No, no no corset for George Russell. Uh, But he's got some fine outfits. And helping him is his valet, Watson who, by the way, seems to be brooding, I don't know, about something. Some He seems kind of mysterious. Have you picked up on that? Yeah, it seems like he has some kind of secret that he's hiding. Hmm. And then at the Van Rynes, there's also Bridget. She is just mm-hmm. a maid. She's cleaning. She's also helping out in the kitchen. Right, yeah. And again, 
there would be more separation of duties in larger homes like the Russells, where a maid might just tend to the cleaning. But Bridget seems to have a wider portfolio of duties, <laughs> if you will. We see her help Mrs. Bauer with the cooking, but she's probably also cleaning the rooms and tending to the laundry and so on. And then there's Jack. I love Jack. Oh, yeah. He had me from our first encounter in episode one. Remember? Outside with the broom? Yes. Um, <laughs> he's like the first person we see. He is a footman, and he's ready to follow Bannister's every command. He just ensures that everything runs smoothly. And I know it was particularly important for footmen to be tall, as Jack is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then at the Russells, you you have all these roles, but just many more people. I mean, it's a bigger kitchen staff, including Scullery, who we don't really hear from. There's many more maids. There's laundresses. There's a whole line of footmen. In livery, don't mm. forget. Yes. And that's only the indoor staff. We haven't even included the outdoor staff, the gardeners, the stablemen. Mm. There were even nighttime security guards for some homes. So by the 1880s here, things were getting increasingly extravagant as the rich were really trying to outdo each other. Ward McAllister, who we will get to in a moment, wrote about this in his 1890s tell-all book, Society as I Have Found It. There were suddenly at this time more footmen in livery serving dinner. There were gold-plated table settings instead of silver. There were more orchids in the dead of winter. Oh my gosh, it sounds so expensive. It was, yeah, and it was driving up costs for everyone. (sighs) McAllister writes that butlers, who had been getting paid $40 a month, were now getting paid up to $75 a month, Mm. and and so on, you know, down the line. And so I am just going to throw out the possibility, Alicia, that people in Agnes's situation might have had an additional reason to detest new money in New York, because their extravagance was making life more expensive for everybody. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But let's like switch back to Armstrong for a second because in this episode we see how she spends her days off. She's actually looking after her sick mother who lives in a tenement. And these were buildings crammed with families who shared dark, cramped, poorly ventilated apartments. And there were thousands of tenement buildings constructed during this period. About 20,000 were constructed in New York in the 1880s and 90s alone. And this is in addition to the thousands that had already been built. And also many earlier buildings, even single-family homes, had been converted into horrible slums and boarding houses, just packing as many people into them as possible. And really, up until the Tenement Law of 1879, rooms didn't even need to have a source of outside air. Oh, gosh. So when you... Think about the millions of poor people who were passing through the city, including immigrants from all over the world. Millions would live in tenements like these. By the way, I have to give a shout out to the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side. You can still walk through various types of tenements at the museum today. Yeah, in our first episode of the podcast, we touched on the idea of tenements and how this was all the newly arrived immigrants could afford. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what kind of culture shock it must have been for the immigrants who were then employed as servants and suddenly found themselves working in these outrageous mansions. Probably felt like another planet, you know, especially Mm -hmm. if like Armstrong, they frequently stepped between these two social extremes. 
But actually, sometimes they really were linked because some of New York's wealthiest families owned the land that these tenements were constructed upon. And chief mm. among them was the Astor family, who were even considered the, quote, landlords of New York. Wow. I wonder how often Mrs. Astor actually thought about that. Yeah. Uh, but for the servants, their living conditions weren't so luxurious either. No, in these grand mansions and such, most had tiny little rooms, you know, hot rooms in the attic mm. or, or windowless rooms in the basement. And they worked very long hours with few days off, which is why on the show we see them going for walks and escaping the house anytime they weren't needed and they'd been granted permission to leave. Well, over at the Russells, Mrs. Bruce hears that the housemaid, Adelheide, has an ambition to become Gladys's lady's maid after her governess was fired. And it's been mentioned several times that Gladys was too old to have a governess. So what exactly is the difference between a governess and a lady's maid? Uh, well, a governess cares for a child or a young adult, in Gladys's case, there were nursery governesses to care for young children, but also, as we've seen here, finishing governesses. These were usually refined women, you know, coming from middle and upper class families who would instruct young women in the subjects and the manners and skills that they would need in order to come out to society. And was a governess also kind of like a substitute parent? Kind of. That's an interesting point. Many parents especially as we see here in these socially prominent families, really had little time to spend in actual child rearing. They were too busy attending to their social duties, you know, planning events, running the house, mm -hmm. whatever, their charities. But here, by suggesting that, that Gladys is ready to move on from a governess and have a lady's maid, well, you know, that was like saying that she was a woman or she was nearly ready to come out. And Adelheide wants to be promoted to that post. Mrs. Bruce takes her dream seriously, approaching uh -huh. Gladys to ask what she thinks about her becoming her lady's maid. Before you ring for Adelheide, may I ask you something? She would like to be considered for the post of your lady's maid. I know. Do you approve of the idea? As long as I will have no more governesses. My mother may use Adelheid's inexperience as an excuse to hire a governess as well. But if we can avoid that, you like the girl. Very much. Then I'll see what I can do. You are the first person to ask my opinion on any decision concerning myself. Any decision whatever. I mean, that really speaks to the roles that young women had in these houses, because even though Gladys is rich, it doesn't mean that she has any power. Yeah, what could she do, right? There's actually a certain amount of irony here in that the older women or the adult women in the show seem to have all the power. Their husbands, you know, make all the fortunes, but they're usually away in offices or clubs or something. But in society, women prevailed, which is hmm. something that Julian Fellas brought up in our interview with him in our first podcast episode. Mm -hmm. And yet, they were almost powerless until they were out in society. Well, even though Gladys got in trouble for trying to sneak out to see Archie Baldwin, her parents decide to invite him over for dinner. And he seems perfectly lovely, but Tom, he isn't the prospective husband that Bertha imagines for her daughter. And she obviously comes up with a way to get rid of Mr. Baldwin. Yeah, and George goes along with his plan. I kind of feel like I sensed him second-guessing there for a moment. Yeah. But then he just pushes right on through with a pretty cruel deal. 
he offers to take care of Archie's future career, but only if Archie promises to never see Gladys again. Yeah, it's it's kind of more of a threat because if Archie doesn't go along with the plan, George also threatens to ruin his career. Oh, right, yeah. This is a no-win situation for Archie. And, mm. and Gladys and Larry totally know that something's up. I mean, they've gotten pushed <laughs> off to the parlor by this time to try to enjoy an after-dinner drink, and they're clearly nervous. And sadly, we see that Archie has taken the deal. I mean, not that he had much of a choice. Mm. But what kind of man do you think Bertha is actually looking for? That's hard to know. Archie seems to have it all. Yeah, he's the son of a diplomat with houses on Fifth Avenue and, as we hear, in Newport soon. Yeah, and you would think that this would be immediately attractive to Bertha, but mm. it, it seems like now she's, you know, now that she's moving up in the world a little bit, her own expectations for her children are also getting an upgrade because she tells George that she wants more for them. And, you know, I have to say here, that the character of Bertha is quite similar to the real-life Alva Vanderbilt, the, the wife of William K. Vanderbilt, who, in 1895, really would block her daughter Consuelo from marrying the perfectly nice young man who she had fallen in love with and, mm -hmm. and force her to marry the English nobleman Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. And, and that is how, then, Consuelo Vanderbilt became a duchess. But yeah, so I, I do think that we're seeing that Bertha has plans for Gladys. Right, and like you said, Bertha herself is moving up in the world. Aurora Fane organises for her to meet the famous Ward McAllister during a luncheon, and Ward, played by the great Nathan Lane, seems to appreciate Bertha's tenacity. Shall I tell you what I think, Mrs. Russell? I think you have a very good chef, French, of course. Of course and a fine palace of a house. But I don't believe your guest list is quite what you would like it to be. Mr. McAllister, you see through me as if I were glass. We can mend that. You and Mrs. Astor? <laughs> me and the people I will introduce you to. I'd love to think you would be my protector. For now, but fairly soon, I'd say you'll be protecting me. <laughs> Mrs. Russell and Mr. McAllister seem to be getting on well. Why wouldn't they when they are more or less the same person? <laughs> I love his laugh. He, 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 he. <laughs> it does seem like this luncheon went really well for Bertha. I mean, Ward McAllister is on her side. And Tom, Bertha really seems to have an innate ability to play these kind of society <laughs> games. Yeah, this lunch was a big moment for Bertha, wasn't it? And actually also for Aurora, and I suppose also for Tom Rakes. I mean, this was yeah. clearly a big meal for everybody. But we see Bertha put on full charm. And I, I don't know about you, but I was, I was rooting for her. Oh, I was too, but I also knew that she could pull this off. Yeah, clearly. And Aurora, I mean, this meal shows, I think, that she's really investing herself, you know, into bringing Bertha into society. It's, mm. it's kind of an amazing transformation for her. Yeah, we see that here and also up in Dansville. I mean, she's really holding up her side of the bargain. And it also mm -hmm. seems like she likes Bertha now or she at least appreciates her. 
And Tom, I know that you are dying to talk about the real Ward McAllister, and we will Mm -hmm. explore him in later episodes. But just for now, can you tell us why he was so important and, and what exactly was his role with Mrs. Astor? Well, Ward McAllister, he was a social arbiter. We might call him today, you know, like the ultimate influencer. Uh, <laughs> he he helped Mrs. Astor decide who was in and who was out of high society. During this period, when there was so much new money that was flooding into the city and everything seemed to be in flux, the New York World newspaper would write that he, quote, devoted himself to the task of social discrimination. But I imagine that Mrs. Astor still had the final say. Yes, but he could propose people to her. He could counsel mm. her. And he knew that she had to open up to new money and new people because they were the future, whether she liked it or not. And if she ignored it, she would be the one who was actually left out and, and ultimately left behind. And we'll leave it at there for now. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of roles... Turner, Bertha's lady's maid, has has been recruited by Oscar Van Ryan to act as a spy for him, giving him information Mm. so he can try to woo Gladys and get back into the Russells' good books. And, Tom, in the clip we heard Charles Fane tell Marion that Ward and Bertha were practically the same person, but I think you could also say the same about Turner and Oscar. (laughs) Yes, Conniving is the word that comes to mind um, <laughs> yeah. from from two very different positions, and yet they're both scheming, really, in their own ways, right? Mm. It's so fortunate, Alicia, that Turner just literally tripped into Oscar on the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. And wasn't he just the, the perfect gentleman helping her to her feet? Perfect gentleman. That's Oscar. But speaking <laughs> of another perfect gentleman, meanwhile, Tom Rakes has helped organize the travel plans for Marion, Peggy, Bertha, Turner, and Aurora up in Dansville, New York. He, like, organized the whole thing. I mean, what can't he do? Oh, my gosh. He really seems to be trying to win Marion over. And, you know, with Dansville being, what they say, like 200 miles away in Mm -hmm. western New York, they have to stay the night at the Dansville Hotel. So was that a real place? It was, yeah. I I looked into this, Alicia. I was rummaging through the Dansville press archives. As you do. (laughs) As one does. And the town did have a hotel built in 1874, the 65-room Highland House, uh, named after its owner, although it would become known as the Dansville Hotel. Hmm. It's not exactly the hotel that we see in the show, but it it was a center of local activity. I'm sure it was very charming. And unfortunately, it would be demolished in the 1970s. Well, they're all in Dansville to hear Clara Barton speak about the Red Cross. So what is the significance of Dansville for that organization? Well, the show nails this historic detail. Clara Barton founded the first chapter of the American Red Cross in Dansville, New York, in 1881, uh, the year just before our story takes place. And in the show, Clara Barton sees through Bertha's donation for the social climbing it is, but she is very appreciative of the money, though Anne Morris tells Aurora Fane that she thinks Bertha's involvement is hypocritical. Pull herself together. I understand. The murderer's wife is trying to buy herself a place in society, and you're happy to take her money. But aren't you ashamed? Do you think you're honoring Patrick by behaving like a child in his memory? You have been defiled. Do you mean my presence has defiled Mrs. Fane? And now, 
Let me welcome Ms. Barton to address you. Thank you all for making this journey to be with me today at what I hope will prove a momentous announcement in the history of our cause, because it now appears that we will be opening not one new branch, as I'd originally planned, but thanks to Mrs. George Russell, we will be opening three. Well done. Well Mrs. Russell, will you be so good as to join me, please? And Mrs. Russell strides proudly up to the podium. <laughs> so, Tom, what do you think about Mrs. Russell's donation? At least it's for a good cause. Indeed, yeah. I mean, remember that the title of this episode is Charity Has Two Functions. Mm -hmm. As Agnes has pointed out, it can help those who are less fortunate, which is wonderful, but it can also function as a way into society among the ambitious. Which, she says, should give us pause. Indeed, which brings us back to Bertha. She's obviously using the money to get into society. That's clear. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, everybody is in on it, right? Aurora knows it. Mm -hmm. She's even pushing it. Clara Barton knows it, and she appreciates it. And clearly, Anne Morris knows it too, and she can't believe that Mrs. Russell is being embraced by everybody. Yeah, Anne Morris is having nothing of Bertha. <laughs> and you'll also remember that Anne Morris is the one who's been pushing Clara Barton and the Red Cross, hosting yes. the event earlier at her house. So having Clara Barton then embrace Bertha is just too much. It's too much for her. Yeah. Did you notice she takes the early train home and doesn't join them for dinner? She, she clearly can't stand being around her. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably better that she wasn't there, actually, when Barton brought up reaching out to Mrs. Chamberlain. That probably would have just, like, pushed Ann Morris over the edge. Oh, my gosh. She would be reaching for her smelling salts. <laughs> <laughs> Quick. Yeah, Aurora almost needed them, actually, when, when Marion offered to reach out to Mrs. Chamberlain herself. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I, Alicia, I also got the idea that Ann Morris was kind of uncomfortable being around Peggy. Did you notice that? Yes, I, mean, it's I a did. Quick look or two, but I don't know. I feel like the way this is evolving, we're kind of running out of sympathy in a way for Mrs. Morris. Yeah, I agree. But back to Bertha's plan, because as well as being charitable and using donations to get into society, it seems like there's even a third function. It's almost like Bertha sees charity as being like insurance against some future tragedy that might happen with the railroad. Yes, she mentions it to George earlier in the episode. Uh, get on the public's good side by funding hospitals, and then they'll forgive you if you're ever in a sticky situation. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of sticky situations, <laughs> how's that for a segue? <laughs> uh, later that night in Dansville, there is quite a little romance that plays out in the hallway between Marion and Tom. Yeah, I wasn't sure where that was going. I, <laughs> I almost reached for my smelling salts. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that scene in a moment with both of these actors. But here we also learn more about Peggy. She opens up to Marion about her true love, Elias Finn, who's a stock boy at her father's pharmacy and who, she says, changed her life. Yeah, it's interesting that we are slowly getting to know more about Peggy's life throughout this season. And, you know, Peggy and Marion clearly have their differences, but they can relate about the difficult relationships in their families. You know, mm -hmm. Peggy has her relationship with their father, Arthur, and Marion with Aunt Agnes. 
and they bond about being in love and being mm. kissed. And, mm-hmm. you know, if nothing else, I feel like we, the audience, kind of let out a sigh of relief here that Marion and Peggy seem to be patching up their differences. Yes, and next we'll talk about Marion and her relationships with the actress who portrays her, Louisa Jacobson, and Thomas Cockerell also joins us, who plays Tom Rakes, who, listeners might be surprised to hear, is Australian. He is. This is the official Gilded Age podcast. Stay with us. Well, I guess I must wish you good night. What else have you in mind? I'm not brave enough to say. Mr. Rakes, don't tell me that is why you made the journey. Not entirely. Not at all, surely. Man can always hope. He cannot hope for that. Have I offended you? You've surprised me. I grant you. Let me surprise you some more. Well, well, well. Things have certainly (laughs) heated up here in the hallway. (laughs) Fortunately, Aunt Agnes is nowhere to be found. Though Alicia and I are delighted to be joined now on the show by Louisa Jacobson, who plays Marion Brooke, and Thomas Cockerell, who plays Tom Rakes. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. We're so happy to have both of you. And Louisa, let's start with you because Marion is really like the the audience's entry into this world of the Gilded Age. We learn about the rules alongside her. So in preparing for this role, did you learn about the Gilded Age and what surprised you about that? I would say everything surprised me about the Gilded Age. I had not really learned that much about this period in history um, for some reason. <laughs> so... <laughs> Literally everything I was learning was fascinating. Like I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. But just to realize that the city as I know it really became what it is during that time, like with all the different cultural institutions, public libraries, museums, it's just fascinating. Every, everything really was so cool. And Louisa, although Marion seems to have a certain innocence to her, you know, yeah. we've also seen that she's not naive, right? From from the beginning, she's actually stood up to Aunt Agnes and pushed back against her rules. What is it that you like about Marion's character? Okay, so this was a really tricky balance for me to strike. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because she is sort of this ingenue role, right? The mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland of the show. But throughout the whole script, and mind you, some of this has been cut out. I think probably in an effort to have Marion grow over the season or something, but there are little bits peppered in where Marion is like throws a subtle dagger every once in a while at Agnes or whatever, and sort of pushes back against, against things, which a a normal naive ingenue might not. She would just sort of accept where she is and have dreams, but sort of, just be in love and pretty and all this. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it was important for me to hold on to those moments where Marion does hold her own and say, like, say to Agnes, 
don't speak badly of my dad. And, and also she sneaks out of the house, you know, in, in the pilot and she, she asks questions that are, might feel inappropriate to those around her, but to the audience, it's kind of like what the audience is wondering as well, like about the opera house specifically, why shouldn't we be excited about a bigger, better opera house? You know, what's the big deal? Money's money. And why shouldn't you take Mrs. Russell's money, you know, for a charity? Right. Charity, charity. And that's, that's part yeah. of like going back to this character is that she's, she's sensible and kind and she's pragmatic, do you know? Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to love, I think she is, she does, you know, have that ingenue idealism and innocence and, but, you know, to her credit, Tom has been there for her as a man, like in her life that no one else has before. And this has also been cut out, but he came to her house when she was selling all of her possessions away after her father died. And he stands up for her in that moment and also offered to drive her to the train in the morning. And I think that Marion doesn't forget a good deed. And he's sort of the only remaining thing she has from Pennsylvania. I think there's something comforting in Tom. There's like a feeling of home in Tom and there's kindness in Tom. And But she also isn't wanting to rush into anything. She's sort of wanting to make the right, smart, pragmatic decision. But she's also in love. So that's a fun conflict to play with. Yeah, and she also pushes back in her own way, right, against Aunt Agnes, you know, just in pursuing or, or going forward with this relationship with Tom. I'm curious, Thomas, how did you go about developing this relationship? I think in terms of our relationship, we built it from a place of that moment in the office. I think we both agreed, and, and speaking to Michael, the director, was that that was like the first time they'd seen each other in a while, and Tom was... Uh, older the last time they'd probably seen each other. They think maybe, you know, we kind of made up a backstory that maybe they'd gone to church together. And the last time Tom had seen Marion, she was a, a younger girl and, and he didn't think much of her in that way. And then to see her now arriving, this is beautiful young woman in, in a state of grief, it kind of changed things and changed his view of her. Yeah, well, a lot of the show so far is the relationship between Tom Rakes and Marion Brooke, and you feel the chemistry of you both together. So, Thomas, when you were going through the casting process, what kind of uh, chemistry reads did you and Louise have to do together, and how did you start to build this relationship? I wish we had some. We just got <laughs> got lucky. That was it. Yeah, we didn't have any chemistry reads. We didn't have actually. any chemistry reads, Yeah. Really? What is a chemistry read for those of us not in the business? <laughs> so it's basically <laughs> oh, yeah. on my third session of callbacks, I was in casting the whole day and they had finalists for the roles oh. and they would read like other roles that Marion had scenes with. So they would have me read with those actors who were in the final round just to see yeah. how we read together. It's like American Idol. <laughs> it's like American Idol of acting. Yeah, see how you go together. Yeah. Well, so if you if you didn't have those, then Thomas and Louisa, how did you how did you start to build that relationship? You know, meeting each other for the first time, maybe on set or or the read through. We met, I think, at rehearsal. Maybe it was a rehearsal. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. a rehearsal, 
And it's really hard not to have chemistry with Tom. Tom is like one of the most charming, <laughs> handsome men I know. He's lovely and he's just so kind and open and he's got this gorgeous Australian accent. What's not to love? Yeah, make, make me gush. I was I was so nervous coming into it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, here I, I'm a support and Louise is leading this thing. I was like, I hope I can step up to the plate. And it was just, it was a piece of cake though. We, we met and, and I remember that first day we went for a long walk. Yeah. We like walked home and we actually were living in the same area in New York. <laughs> we could see if you squinted, you could see each other's window and if the light was on or off. And actually, in, in COVID, in COVID, when we couldn't uh, couldn't really see each other or, or see anyone for that matter because we were, you know, being safe and we were talking through Morse code. Really, we were just yeah. flicking lights on and off to, to communicate <laughs> with always, each other. I would always spy in those dark on times. Tom and see if he was still awake, like late, late, mm. late at night. It's like, oh, Tom's still up. It's two in the morning. He's partying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's up reading. He's, he's up reading late again, is he? I mean, that sounds like a scripted drama <laughs> yeah. right there. I yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. We also had conversations, like the rehearsals were chances for us to have conversations like Tom had mentioned about Marion and Tom's backstory. And I think that really helps to solidify some sense of a history between the two of us. There's two things you have to work on with some of this. I think it's the you know, the rehearsal period where you're talking about Marion and Tom and their relationship and how they get along. And then that chemistry is informed by the real relationship and the real hopeful friendship that you have with your castmate. And those two things need to kind of be sorted out and, and well worked out before it works and flows properly. I think we were lucky that we both kind of did do the work and came to set ready to play and, and had a fair idea of what we wanted to do with these characters. And then on top of that, we just got lucky with a wonderful friendship between the two of us. And and that lends to, um, I think, a pretty easy and well-flowing um, chemistry in the show itself. Tom, me, and Ben Allers, who plays Jack, the footman in the, in the Brook House, we were friends. And I remember I cooked dinner for them one time in my apartment in Williamsburg. <laughs> it was lovely. So cool. But it's funny because there's a scene where that clip you just played, that was the second time I think Marion and Tom had a kiss in the shooting process. But that one was technically in the story. That's the first time. Mm-hmm. We had to pretend like the second one was the first yes. one and the first one was the second one and and how to go about that without also being, you know, weird and nervous too because right. it's, or like it's without always a funny having old the thing. first kiss in the story feel too, like, familiar and sexy because it technically had mm. to be new and, and uh, maybe a little bit awkward or, you know. Right. Yeah, a bit nerve-wracking. Yeah, that was also something interesting to work with. Like, I was working with the assumption that Marion was a, a virgin. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I don't think she's ever kissed anyone before. So I, that's kind of an interesting challenge as an actress in 2022. You know, that's definitely not my experience at this moment at 30 years old, but I had to really ask myself what that must be like for Marion in that moment. And Thomas, I imagine that you must have spent time thinking about, you know, what Tom's intentions were during that Dansville scene. Absolutely. I think um, 
I had a very clear understanding of where he was coming from. And I think it actually may have differed from it, Michael's and, and even Julian's and uh, maybe Louise's. I think we all came at various points of different angles, but settled on something quite clear. But I think he just feels for her from the start. You know, he wants to take care of her. And, and then from there, I always felt like it was a very earnest and honorable approach. But as he moves to this city and as he as he finds his way around this this new society, there's certainly pulls in different directions. Yeah. While we're on that dangerous tightrope, Louisa, in this episode, mm-hmm. I mean Thomas just mentioned that you it's really your character. It's it's Marion who introduces him into society, right, with this mm-hmm. lunch at the um at the Fane's house that Ward McAllister attends. But then by this scene in the hotel, by this famous kiss, she's also, I think right before the kiss, she's warning him that a lot of this may come to an end one day, right? So it seems like she's wrestling with something at the same time. And I wonder if you can speak to that. Yes. I mean, I think it's, we see how money can affect relationships, even now, today. Mm -hmm. But in that for instance, with Cornelius Eckhart III and Ada, you know, and Agnes has a talk with him and she says, mm-hmm. she doesn't have any money. You're not, you're not going to be marrying a meal ticket. Yeah. And, and he, he leaves. Off. Yeah. And it's like, I think that Marion, like you said, she's, she's idealistic, but she is not naive. She had a father who gambled all his money away. She's very observant of how powerful money can be in this world. And she knows that if she doesn't have any, it puts her at a disadvantage. She's kind of like me. And that's, that's where I really connect with Marion. She's very, very thoughtful and goes through everything in her head. Like, I don't think he's distracted by the glamour and glitz of everything. I don't think that's what he's after, but maybe he is. And I just have to cover my bases and like make sure and be careful and make sure he knows that if he marries me, he won't have any of that. Just so that Marion can feel safe with her decision. She wants to, like, really make sure this is the right one. I think that's the interesting and opposite thing with Tom. I think he is kind of naive. He's blinded to the fact that money could change things. I think he really only sees what is in front of him, you know. And I think as soon as he sees Marion, that's it. You know, it's Marion. And she's going to New York. Okay, cool. Let's go to New York. Mm. I need a job now to be in New York. Okay, cool. I'll just get a job. But it's always really just about what's in front of him and a short game. I don't think there's much calculation. I don't think he, I think that's where they really differ is that he doesn't really go down the long path because if he did, he'd probably do things quite differently. It's tricky with Tom as well because, you know, Aunt Agnes sort of expects him to be part of society in order to be an appealing prospect for Marion. But then as he does, he gets called an adventurer. So, Thomas, what are your thoughts about that balance? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when when you start thinking about the beauty of Julian's writing, you can see that he's kind of hinted to these things, even in the naming of his characters. And we realize this one day, like even... Louise's character, Marion Brooke, is broke at the start, you know, and isn't coming from much money. Tom Rakes is is a rake, you know, and he moves into that world. I think there are clues in the writing that kind of give things away when you when you look for it. But certainly I think in terms of an adventurer or a rake or a bachelor, that was always his his journey. And I guess it's about where that ends up and where that could go. And that's that's interesting too. 
I wanted to ask a little bit just about some of your little rendezvous the two of you had around New York. Let's see, you met in Central Park. Mm -hmm. um, you met at the arm of the Statue of Liberty. Mm -hmm. And on a previous podcast episode, we were speaking with the location manager, Lori Pitkiss, on the show. And we were just blown away by what went into recreating those locations. What was it like to shoot at some of these locations outside? I mean, like, Thomas, even in this episode, we see you driving Marion in a carriage. Um, I don't know if that's something you're familiar with, if you do that every day. What's... <laughs> I can't believe I didn't have more training to do some of that stuff. It was really just like like five minutes before. They're like, you can do this. And you're like, okay, yeah, cool, cool. And action. You're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> we were shooting the scene at the train, and Tom... <laughs> Tom's there and like, you know, Marion has to be very sad in this moment. She's like saying goodbye to Tom. He's her only friend and she's about to embark on this scary journey. And she has like homesickness and all this. And I'm like in the, that element, you know, and I'm saying uh -huh. goodbye and he's like, supposed to get on the carriage and sort yeah, of Yeah, we started with the wide. We did the whole scene, the hat yeah. tip, the thank you goodbye yeah, yeah, the and thing. I literally just 5 minutes before been taught what to do with the the horse and carriage and <laughs> Louise is like crying saying goodbye to me. I jump in the horse and carriage, do what I think is right and the horses go nowhere. The no no one's moving. <laughs> no, he's like he's like walk on. <laughs> and then there's like that, that, that. like nothing happens. And he goes, Radio he like yeah, he tries to stay in character so they could like cut around walk it. Walk on, like, walk on, walk on, walk on, walk on. No, and nothing. I just they weren't having so hard. I couldn't. They weren't having a bar of it that day. <laughs> no, but in terms of those locations, I think you've you've mentioned the two. The, the that that Central Park day was. Oh, outrageous shooting shooting at Bethesda Fountain was it was really emotional like it was kind of oh, really? really really yeah just just for us that's a dream you see that location in film you see people shooting in Central Park and I think even as an Aussie to find myself in a Julian Fellows period HBO show in the middle of Central Park in the middle of a pandemic when you know work was so hard to come by I, I I've just felt so privileged and so lucky to be there and it was a beautiful beautiful day and the amount of extras that we had too you were doing a 360 turning around and you couldn't not be in the time period everywhere you looked you were transported back mm. in in time it was pretty pretty sensational it was so romantic I mean it was like the height of spring and everything was in bloom. And that's the only time that we mm. really got to shoot in actual Manhattan, you know, because mm -hmm. the rest yeah. of it was, as you mentioned, Tom, places they had recreated. So it was really, really amazing to actually be in a real place. Also, the scene in the park with Liberty's hand, obviously mm -hmm. that was CGI. So we were looking at a pole with an X on it, <laughs> that they had put on a fake plinth. <laughs> that was CGI? I thought that they had actually constructed something. Wow. I know, it looked no, so real. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm not supposed to, like, ruin the magic of it. <laughs> you've, you've ruined it <laughs> now, Louise. I know, <laughs> but, like, you know, we had to ask. Where all like, our, our endowment like, oh, work wow, at drama school really paid off. Hand. Yeah, like. <laughs> it was just, like, this rod. Yeah. Um, Troy is such a, that's, we shot it in Troy, and it was so gorgeous that day, too. I was reading House of Mirth throughout the whole process. Tom knows he made fun of me for how yeah. long it took me to read that book, but I just always had it with me and I would read it in between takes, especially when I needed some inspiration. And there was a, there's a line that Edith Wharton 
so beautifully wrote, just describing a a summer, late summer day. And she mm-hmm. said something along the lines of the air was filled with powdered gold. And that just, I don't know, it did something. It helped me get back into that scene after such a long day. It's like keeps the magic alive, which is cool. We shot that scene in, in Troy and that was another day where it was kind of weird because we were in the middle of this park. You could see like a horse and carriage really a couple of hundred meters away. And you're like, gosh, the, mm. the detail, that was that was the most time traveling I think I've ever done in, in one day. It was really quite detailed and, and excellent. Well, in this in this episode, we get to travel to Dansville and another relationship that deepens after Dansville is the friendship between Marion and Peggy Scott. You know, Marion takes the time to apologize for the Boots incident in Brooklyn. And in the clip we have for you, Marion points out the differences between the roles that she and Peggy have to play in society. Take a listen. You have to remember, I never met a woman like you before I came to New York. You mean colored? No. More that you and Clara Barton are your own people. The women I knew in Doylestown just accepted the role of wife and mother, but you make your own path. I can't wait to see your article in print. We'll just have to keep it from your Aunt Agnes. We can add that to the list of what Aunt Agnes doesn't need to know. I just hope Mr. Fortune is happy with it. Are you happy? Living here? Only your mother said... I told you that's family business. But I know what it's like to have your family taken from you. Whatever your quarrel, one day your father will be gone. And you don't want the burden of regret that you never made it up when you could. I don't think it would be heavier than what I'm carrying now. Peggy... Louisa, can you tell us about the friendship between Marion and Peggy Scott? Sure. It begins as a transactional moment. So they meet each other when they're both sort of in very vulnerable points in their lives. Marion's just lost everything and Peggy's on her way to New York, but she's not sure if she's going to see her parents and there's some drama there and she's carrying around a very intense trauma. And so this scuffle happens, she loses her purse, and Peggy feels bad for her, so she buys her a ticket on the train. So it's it's very transactional, but like I said before, Marion doesn't forget a good deed. And similar to the way Tom showed her kindness when she was in a vulnerable place, I don't think Marion forgets. Like, she really means it when she says to Peggy, thank you for what you did. Please ask for me when you come for the money, because, you know, Marion wants to thank her again. So I think she just really appreciates that gesture. It grows into something more. I think Marion doesn't understand the dangers that Peggy lives with as a Black woman. Marion remains ignorant to that, makes assumptions about Peggy being poor, which is funny because Peggy bought her train tickets. And Marion is very well-meaning and wants to go visit, make a surprise visit at Peggy's home and wants to be useful. She always wants to be useful. So she brings her these shoes, old shoes, interrupt her mother's birthday brunch, you know. So it's, that scene was really, it was one of the most challenging and rewarding scenes to film in the entire process for me, just to be across Audrey McDonald and John Douglas Thompson and 
to be so embarrassed and humiliated. Like, but we really pushed, me and Danae really pushed for there to be a serious riff, a very serious confrontation, because in earlier renditions of the script, they, number one, were really fast friends, and number two, that moment after the shoes was sort of reconciled really quickly. Mm-hmm. And we said, actually, this needs to be a bigger riff because the only way that their friendship can actually grow into something meaningful and is if there's a real big rupture or moment where I have to get Peggy's trust back. In this episode, you see that when you go to Peggy's room, right, and you try to kind of like get it Mm -hmm. to kickstart the friendship again, and she kind of says, look, like... We had a falling out. Let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I live my life. It's hard. It's actually hard for the audience, you know, because you're invested in that relationship. You want the friendship to work. Exactly. That scene that you just played, that's the first time I've heard it. I like cringe when I listen to my voice. But it's, <laughs> it's true. I think, you know, even in that, we see glimmers of Marianne's ignorance in some way. Like, yes, it seems like Peggy is so driven and has such an amazing career opportunity and path. But what she doesn't understand is that there's so much inequity between the two of them still. But regardless of that, she is truly inspired by this woman, Peggy, and is glad to be her friend and honored to be her friend. And and I think Peggy's character has made Marion's character more interesting, in my opinion. Like, Mm -hmm. it's sometimes it's hard to play an ingenue because you see everyone else has these, like, really clear tracks, what they're after. And they have big personalities. Carrie Coon gets to be bitchy and, and <laughs> Cynthia Nixon gets to be sweet. Yeah. And, and, you know, Agnes mm-hmm. is just, and I just sometimes felt like, oh, I'm just like a pretty girl who's just here. But, but I think that there is an exception to that in Marion's number one determination to be friends with Peggy and her love for Peggy and also in her determination to make this choice with Tom. Yeah, I, I love Peggy yeah. and Marion's relationship. I think the way that it evolves is is not so, you know, some people might say it's improbable, but I have interracial friendships and it's not without complication. And I think, I hope it'll spark some dialogue between people in the world now if they watch it yeah 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 and you were mentioning louisa some of the incredible cast members thomas what was it like for you to come on this set where we were trying to count tom and i how many tony award winners there are (laughs) on this cast it's it's outrageous it is it's it's, it's outrageous it's uh the first few weeks was just really really daunting to believe that you could be amongst and in and amongst that that that, that caliber of, of talent feels insulting you're like how the, how the hell do you can you belong here and really stay on your own two feet and feel like uh, you deserve to be here but everyone is just so so lovely and so grounded uh, nathan lane we had a lot of time with nathan lane too and he's he was just so freaking funny um, oh my god like, he, we he were just so we were buckling, peeing in our pants buckling, i know we just <laughs> <laughs> they say on everything there's always you know there's always a problem on every set and if you can't find the problem then it's probably you and on, <laughs> and on this everyone 
Everyone was just so, so kind and lovely and open and, and ready to um, ready to play, ready to work and ready to give it their best. So I'm convinced I was the problem, I think, because I couldn't find one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Louisa, Marion obviously also lives, you know, in the home of her two aunts, played by Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon, both of whom we've spoken to on the podcast already, and they pointed out how different their characters are from each other. And then your character comes and brings another dynamic to that house as well. What was it like working with Christine and Cynthia and developing a kind of rapport between the three of you? Oh my God, it was a dream. It was a dream to work with those two. They're so, they are veteran TV actors and they have Mm -hmm. their roots in theater. So I just watched and learned. It was like a masterclass the entire time. It was just, it felt like a, you know, I was cast in this a few months after I'd graduated Yale School of Drama. And I just felt like this entire process has just been a continuing of my education. And the way that they can dive so deep into truth and stay consistent every single take, no matter how many takes, you know, mm-hmm. they just, they go there every single time and they hit all the moments so perfectly. And I, I was, I was playing catch up and I was learning, you know, this is a big arena to sort of put yourself out there and learn. And so it was a very daunting and vulnerable process for me. And it still is, especially now that it's released to the public, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what I would have done had I not been surrounded by that much support. Um, They were so nurturing and lovely and Christine just has this regal manner about her and, you know, it worked for Marion at, at first. I, Louisa was like intimidated by, <laughs> by her, of course, because she's just so regal. She's like a queen. The same with Cynthia. I just I have so much respect and admiration for them. But, you know, at the same time, when you're working with them in that setting, you realize that they're doing the same thing as you are and they are worried about the same things about getting the scene right. And, and so it's humbling. It's like, we're all here doing the work. Well, one question that we're asking everyone on the show, especially to you, Louisa, what is it like wearing those oh costumes? God. I imagine there must be great pleasure, but also a lot of challenge yes, as well. That's, it's, that's, it's a blessing and a curse. I think childhood me, six-year-old me would look at myself in the show and just be like, obsessed. I, you know, there were times when I just felt like a princess, but it also was really horrible to wear a corset for 13 hours a day Mm. was really taxing on my body and, and my psyche. I didn't sleep on my side for many months of shooting because it was so tender. And I think that the costumes were an integral part of how I stepped into the character and stepped into the world and to understand what it felt like to be a woman at this time and to, I think, the constriction of the corset and the the costumes that went up to my neck and add on top of that the COVID mask. It helped oh my with, with my, Louisa's experience of feeling like, oh, I want to do more than this. Like, I want to, I want to break these boundaries. And I think that that I was told by one of the directors to like work with that feeling because I think a lot of the time I came in Mm. sort of guns blazing, ready to go. And they were like, you have to dial it back because at this time, self-control, as you know, Tom was like 
No, I don't know. <laughs> um, was a thing, right? You couldn't like in public. You couldn't be too excited or too upset, or you had to have this self possession. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was a tricky thing to balance. Like, how do I be active but also be polite in this time and dial it down? So the corset helped all of that. We found that interesting even with their flirtation and their chemistry was interesting to try and like what is forward in 1883, mm-hmm. you know, compared to today mm-hmm. and how, how do you let yourself be known or you know, how do you, how do you flirt in, <laughs> in the olden days? Like it was, it was, it was interesting to see what was too much and what was, what was allowed, but even removing a glove was um, <laughs> pretty Sexy. pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Well, which makes the scene then in today's episode yep. where you kiss in the hallway up against a bedroom door, basically. I mean, that's downright scandalous. It really, it actually, <laughs> it is, but it really is. And it's almost borderline wrong. You know, I mean, it make, <laughs> makes for good TV. No, but yeah. it makes, it makes yeah. for good TV, but it, it was kind of a bit of work for me, trying to understand how this could be done, you know, with the right intentions and coming from the right place and from an earnest place. And not be creepy. Yeah, exactly. They say a good, a good actor's always, you know, defending their characters, like a good lawyer always defending them. And I saw, having to find a way in to understand, because it is so forward, it is so past the line that is drawn. But you also can't stop trying to understand Tom's natural, masculine, you know, emotional wants in that moment and and how we felt and navigating that was an interesting thing to do. Yeah, it's certainly an exciting watch. Well, Thomas Cockerell and Louisa Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us on the official Gilded Age podcast. Thank Thank you you for having us. It's an honor. Wow, Alicia, that was so much fun. What a great, great conversation with us two. Yeah, they were both so lovely and I loved hearing Louisa talk about the relationship between Peggy and Marion and how the conflict was so necessary. I thought she was so thoughtful with the way she spoke about that. She was, yeah. And I loved imagining that Louisa and Tom and Ben Ehlers, who plays Jack the Footman for the Van Rines, that they actually are friends who live in the same neighborhood. And they were eating together over at Louisa's uh, Williamsburg apartment. I mean, that's like, that's gold. That is just, it's amazing to imagine that. Yeah, I would have loved to be there. But uh, make sure you join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, because next week we have more interviews with the cast and crew. And I'm excited because our subject will be entertaining and etiquette. There's so much to discuss. So much to discuss and so much for me to learn. But uh, don't forget to watch new episodes (laughs) of The Gilded Age, airing Mondays on HBO and HBO Max. And then tune in to our next podcast. Bye, everyone. See you soon.